Hi, it's Zoe Routh, and this is the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast. If you are a new listener, woohoo, welcome. We are so delighted to have you here. I'm excited that you're tuning in. And if you're a return listener, you rock. Thank you so much for being a repeat listener, a repeat offender. Now, that sounds terrible. <laughs> a repeat listener is awesome. So thanks very much for tuning in and sharing a little bit of your brain uh, space with us. It's 2020. Yeah. And it is the last week of January, which is a back to school or back to work week for many people in Australia. Isn't it luxurious that so many Australians take the entire month of January off like me? <laughs> so I'm excited to be back in force uh, with a brand new shiny year ahead. And if that is you too, or even if you've been going hard for the last couple of weeks, it's still a brand new shiny year. Make sure that you do sign up to the blog and get all the latest podcasts as well as our weekly articles on people stuff. We've got an amazing bunch of things happening this year. Launch of a new book, launch of amplifiers in a number of different cities around uh, Australia. Love for you to be aware of those and to join us if you can. So just click the link in the show notes and that'll get you all hooked up to making sure that you're part of the community. So I'd love to interact with you more. Now onto the theme of today. I love leadership in the trenches where we actually talk to real live humans who are doing the leadership thing. And today's leader is one of those amazing leaders who has learned a lot experientially by the hands-on leadership. And she's going to be talking about collective wisdom. She didn't use those words. I'm using them. And it's about the wisdom of the team, of the group, and the brilliance of leading with questions. And it's a huge shift in leadership conceptualization. I think the traditional view of leadership is all about being the hero, having all the answers, and to charge forward with a vision. If you ask a lot of people what is leadership, they say, have a vision, get people to follow you. Rubbish. <laughs> I think nowadays leadership is all about finding collective solutions to what's needed and collectively deciding where we're going. And she models and has discovered a methodology and a process to do that so that we can bring out the best in each other and collectively find the best solution. She is none other than Jo Metcalf. She is the Global Strategy Development Leader at GHD, and she is remarkable. So please welcome Jo. Welcome, Jo. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this one for so long. It's so great to talk to a leader who's been in the trenches doing the leadership thing on both a local stage and a global stage. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Zoe. It's great to be here. <laughs> I can't wait to share your story. And the first question I have is about that story. Like, how does one end up being a global strategy development leader at GHD? So you're going to have to tell us a little bit about your pathway to that massive sounding title and also a little bit about GHD too. Sure. Pathway is a good word and some people call it a portfolio. And I like to say my leadership journey is a bit more like cross country. <laughs> Um, I started an advanced science degree. I was going to be an immunologist. I don't know why, but ended up graduating as a landscape architect in 1995. What? How do you go from immunologist to what? That's weird. <laughs> well, I took up golf, right? And I thought what? I was going to go and design golf courses with Greg Norman. I, I love how naive I was back then. <laughs> okay. So wait, where does the immunology thing fit into golfing and architecture? I have no idea. I think, um, you know, I started out with, with the science degree because I got into that university. Um, my dad's a scientist, so that was kind of a pathway that made sense to me. But I took up golf and I'm also interested in the environment and a, a more generalist course 
appealed to me and I and I literally did think that I was I should go and design golf courses with, with Greg Norman. It was a true story. <laughs> <laughs> well, my golfing friends and um, clients will be very excited to hear that. D- do you still play golf? Uh, it's one of those things that has um, uh, been put aside until my kids are a bit older and then I can afford the time to get back on the course. I miss it a lot and I probably play once or twice a year. That's it. Right. Well, yeah, you need to put that on your agenda to do more of, even if it's like for a couple holes in the evening or something like that. But, you know, personally, I've tried golfing. It is emotional torture. <laughs> but it's been, I think it's been a good thing for me to, and golf is a, is a real leveler, so you can't take it too seriously. It's really oh. important. Yeah. If you have ego issues, this will deal with that. <laughs> you cannot have ego in golf. 100%. <laughs> Yeah, when I'm in the trees, there's no ego. <laughs> okay, so back to the the uh, trajectory of your career. So you thought you would be landscaping with Greg Norman on the golf course. So that ended. <laughs> and, and so how did you end up? What happened next? I've never even met Greg Norman. Um, I ended up doing a little bit of practice, but um, I moved to Canberra to be with my then boyfriend, now husband, and ended up getting a job with the Australian Institute of Architects. So straight into peak body or professional peak body management. And over those three years, I covered quite a bit. I covered policy, governance, communications and and member services. It was a really great job. I got to care for my local members uh, and became the head of the ACT chapter. In the Institute, the Architect Institute? Yeah. Okay, so you you went to like to a membership association dealing with all that kind of thing, and then presumably you left there and got into business. Yeah, so one of my member firms found me and thought I'd be good at practice management. I thought they were absolutely crazy, quite bonkers, but I said yes, and I went into professional services as a managing principal of an architecture and interior design and project management firm. And I was there for four years, and that's where I really learned how to be a proper consultant. It was a fantastic experience. So let me just check in with that a little bit. So somebody identified that you had potential. You'd never done this work before, and you, that's why you thought they were bonkers, right? Yes. The story goes they invited me um, to two of the leading principals in this in this firm, invited me for a coffee. I was you know, the head of the the chapter at the time. So I just assumed it was a member care visit. And they said, we're we're looking for a practice manager. And so I just thought I was writing an ad in my local memo, uh, in my local communique to to the market to find them a practice manager. So I just started taking notes. They said, you know, we need someone who's good with people. We want someone who's who knows the industry. And they started listing all these things. And I was like, oh, that's great. You know, okay, well, I can type that up and I'll I'll get it into the local newsletter. And they said, well, we think that person is you. <laughs> I had just taken a sip of my coffee and I nearly spat it all over them. But um, yeah, it was really, um, it was a complete shock. But uh, someone gave me some advice one one time to never say no to an opportunity. So I said, yes. I think this is wonderful. And I think what's interesting is that somebody saw something in you that you didn't see in yourself. And I talked to a lot of leaders that have similar challenges, like, they are, for example, I've got about three different clients who've ended different jobs and are now looking for their next opportunity. And the struggle they have is, I've never done that before, so how can I convincingly put my hand up for it? It's different if somebody picks you out. So what advice would you have for them? For people who may not 
you know, see a, a certain pathway for themselves or not see certain things in themselves? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. So they have a career aspiration that they want to move into a different arena. So that, let's say they're a practitioner, they want to do strategy, but they've never really in their existing experience had a solid run of taking on a strategic role. It's more of like a question of authenticity. Like, How can I put my hand up and apply for jobs around strategy if I haven't actually fully done it before? That was my question. So how, how would you encourage people to go for it or not go for it? I think I think go for it. Um, and I think it's about using your network um, and backing yourself to be a learner. So um, I didn't know how to run a practice of architects and interior designers. Of course, I didn't. Um, nor did I ever think that I could. It would, wouldn't have even crossed my mind. But turns out I was good at it. They did see something in me. So I think this, this idea of success um, and having had to do something before you can step into it is sort of not a contemporary view anymore I think if you find a great person who has um, broad capability and you can see things in them that might be a match they will learn they will I love that so I think that's probably a really significant piece of advice is back yourself as a learner as opposed to somebody who's got competency already and so 100% your employers at that time snatched you out and said we back you as a learner we don't care you haven't done this before we reckon you can learn and get it done so off they plucked you into this new role, and what happened next? Well, it just so happened that I was doing an MBA, an early career MBA, and that was very useful at the time. Um, the directors of this firm thought that that was an important piece to be able to contribute to the practice, including the strategy of the practice and how to execute that. Uh, I actually did it at the same time as my husband, so that was very romantic. <laughs> um, and oh so I found myself in a group of, believe it or not, um, five managing principals, uh, principal architects and interior designers and two directors. And we were, we were the, the, the um, East Coast leadership team and um, incredibly rewarding. Uh, and I did use that. I directly applied my MBA and learned, drank from the fire hose from my closest managing principals and principal architects of how to be a consultant. How to, how to run an architectural practice. Okay. So, yeah, you immersed yourself in learning and from experience around you. And was that uh, the, the consultancy practice? That wasn't with DHD. It was a different organization, yeah? No, yeah. So, that was four years before. So, I did four years with them. They're an outfit called Peck von Hartel. So, they're based in Melbourne, Sydney and Canberra. Um, wonderful directors, Yvonne and Robert, and I learned a huge amount from them. And then I was on a project and GHD happened to be on that particular project. They courted me, literally, um, you know, took me for, for lunches and, and dinners and lots of phone calls and coffee. And five months later, I said yes to going with them. I didn't, I didn't know very much about them other than the fact that I thought they were engineers and scientists, but it turns out they are much more than that. So in 2004, uh, I joined them in, in February it's a many disciplinary, technical, professional services and advisory business. I've had 15 years here and done at least eight or nine different roles over that time, all across professional practice. So you said it before, um, rolling out your sleeves and doing, um, doing the managing, doing the consulting. I did technical services leadership globally. I became an owner, so a shareholder of the business, which was really important market development, client relationship management, and now in strategy. 
<laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> As you do. As you do. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary, really. So if, if I'm joining the dots, it's like having that career trajectory where you did eight or nine different roles across the 15 years gave you a huge insight into the organization as a whole. Yes, yes, I did. And I, and I don't think I knew that at the time, but the the organization was finding me and I was finding it for, for the various roles. So it was a really, yeah, it was a nice kind of alchemy, if you like. Um, I always landed on my feet and was never bored. I have had, yeah, an absolute wonderful 15 years with, with GHD and it's doesn't look like stopping. Yeah, that's great. And correct me if I'm wrong, GHD is owned by employees. Is that correct or incorrect? That's right. So the, the business is wholly staff owned. 25 to 30% uh, of the 10,000 people own the business. So it's pretty special and fairly rare these days. Yeah. I mean, that, that's collective leadership. So I'm, I'm really curious about how that actually works. So if 15 to 20% of the staff own the business... How do you allocate authority for decision-making? How does that work? Um, so, well, the principals and the associates uh, and the shareholders really a designation and the governance and the structures of the organisation is, is um, kept, you know, a little bit separate, but it makes sense that the material owners would play a, a, a large role in, in the leadership and the management uh, roles of the organisation as well. So there's quite a bit of overlap. Okay. So, yeah, there's a delegation framework around decision-making and strategy. Yes. Okay. So how did you develop your strategy skills? Because, I mean, to lead a global company um, with so many different, like, I think octopus legs to it, (laughs) requires a huge amount of systems thinking, uh, in particular, to be able to be across all that dynamic. How did you go about developing your skills for strategy? I think the MBA did help from a technical point of view. Uh, I think being 15 years in the company, so knowing the the machinery and the mechanics and how the social systems work, being very people orientated, and also I believe very strongly that I don't need to be the strategist. I'm actually not not a strategist, (laughs) but I'm very good at drawing out of the organisation what our strategy could be. Uh, and packaging it up in a way that people can understand and could help create our or sustain our competitive advantage going forward. Okay, so you're a little bit of a intelligentsia uh, brain sucker. <laughs> That's the way I'm just exactly. thinking about it. Like an alchemist, so you've got your magic wand and pulling out ideas from everybody around you. I think that's a nice way of putting it. Um, I'm good at designing questions. I'm good at designing a process. And I think uh, my dad taught me that uh, the wisdom of the room, the wisdom of teams, you don't have to be the knower of everything. You can draw it out of of the people around you because they will likely know. know, It's your job as a a leader or a, um, a manager of the strategy process to pull it together. That's an incredibly important insight because I think traditionally we expect leaders to have all the answers and that sort of hero model of I have the vision, follow me, and this is the way we're going to do it. And that, I mean, it's, it's so comforting if we have that, somebody who believes with great conviction that this is the way, this is the path, and yet it's one human and that human can be incredibly flawed and have a huge amount of mistakes. So it's, it's a much better ability to be able to draw out that wisdom from a collection of people. Yeah, and not just internally. So 
I was very um, strong on the idea of trying to do this with clients and not not necessarily co-create because we're not we're not very good at co-creating yet. We're getting better at it, but I certainly. Um, asking the industries and, and being mindful of what our clients are faced with um, and how the macro forces of the world and our industries are impacting them and us and our communities, their constituents and their customers, and to try and bring that whole system, you know, into the strategy space has been incredibly rewarding and I think makes for richer strategy. Oh, totally. You know, I've been reading lots and having lots of conversations on LinkedIn in particular about this idea, where does the client sit and in your organizational map, and it should be at the center. And I guess there's layers underneath that too. It's like your client sits within a community and, and flows. Like it's all quite interconnected as opposed to just thinking about who's, who's, who's in our team <laughs> and what, how do we interact? Yeah, at the top of it. Yeah. 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 So I like to think, um, I used to think that if, if you had to have a hierarchical org chart, I would, as the leader of it, um, need to be at the bottom. And my clients were always at the top of it. And my leadership team would, would wrap around the organisation itself or the, the set of teams within it. So it was um, more of a support and nurturer. And I was sitting at the bottom in my rightful place, um, you know, nudging and supporting the, the organisation in the right direction. That was my That was my view. And I interviewed somebody recently called Oshoke Pamela Abalu. Oh, I said her name correctly. Wow. <laughs> Powerful name. Lovely. And she's got a business called Big Love. Um, hang on. Is that right? I will put a link in the show notes to make sure I get the correct name of her company. And essentially, she has this fabulous page on her website, which upends the whole idea of hierarchy and has, as her business model, concentric circles and interconnected hubs as, as a business principle. I'm like... That's it. That's a much better image of how we work as organizations that are collectively oriented, people oriented and community oriented so that we can see the interconnections and support that we have for each other, as opposed to top down or bottom up or whatever. I think that is incredibly powerful. And I believe that the word love is the most underused but most needed word in business. Tell me more about that. Because that's well, we really think, strange from... more. From an architect-trained individual who works in a very left-brain kind of organization, the concept of love in yeah. business is, is not usual. So tell me about why you believe this. Well, and, may, and maybe it's because I'm sitting in a, in a very much a left-brained organization that I feel the need for, for more love in the space. I think the other thing that impacts that is that we are, it feels like a family when you're in a staff-owned environment. So we, we do deeply care for one another and we have high levels of affection and affiliation for one another and we should be able to express that. I don't think we should leave our emotions at the door when we come to work. Um, and if I tell my colleagues and my teams that I love them and, and will support them, then I would have thought that makes it a better workplace. How does that work in real time, actually, in, in the business? Like, do you go around saying, I love you to everyone? Or how does it actually play out? Is it systemized? Is it habitual? Is it anchored in your practices? Um, uh, well, a few things. I think um, one of the practices that we institute, well, that I like to think that I instituted um, as a in, in my leadership team is check-in. So every month we would check in personally. How you know how's life going and how are you feeling right now? And do you need anything from us? What do we need to know that can help you 
in that environment, you know, checking in on team and checking in on the organisation. And all the way down to my pod buddy, we, we do tell each other that we love each other and we hug each other every time. Not every time we see each other, but when I get back from, from a week's travel or something, you know, we give each other a hug. Why not? That's nice. And I say, I, miss, I missed you. I missed what, you. What's a pod buddy? <laughs> oh, so where we sit. So I sit in open plan, uh, which is one of my other philosophies. I'd rather not have an office. I love sitting out. We put the radio on. We... We joke about the songs and and the and the the silly things on the radio and um I love the banter and the osmosis that occurs you know the, the learning from each other that occurs in an open plant workspace that's what the pot is okay okay thank you for clarifying that because I'm like what do you have like a little cubicle like <laughs> it's some sort of round bubble <laughs> that's, that's your pot <laughs> yeah no no it's your standard desk she just sits next to me <laughs> okay okay awesome. So when we when we first met, I asked you, okay, w- tell me about the people stuff. What do, what do you struggle with the people stuff? And you answered, um, nothing. I love it. And I was like gobsmacked because you're probably the first person who says they don't find the people stuff difficult. <laughs> so tell me about that. Like, how how is it that you love the people stuff and you don't find it hard? Well, I think I think in an engineering company, I would find the technical work harder, whereas the the people stuff and my interest in people and what makes them tick, you know, including my interest in myself and how we fit together, you know, and I think it's a support and nurturer in me as well. I happen to be extroverted, so people give me energy. That's that's useful. So I find myself in, you know, big crowds actually feeling energised after it, um, you know, completely. And so it's, yeah, I, I it's not that it's not difficult because, you know, they, the whole systems are, are complex and people are complex. And the day-to-day can be difficult and professional services is not an easy easy thing. Consulting is, is difficult. But I think of all the things that I spend my time on, my preference is to spend it with people. Okay, cool. That makes a little bit more sense. And what is one of your most important beliefs, either when it comes to work or when it comes to people? Uh, well, I think I said it, I mentioned it before. Um, it was the, the thing that my dad taught me. So the wisdom of the team or the mm-hmm. wisdom of the room. So the world the world has all the answers and the people around you know most of them. Your job as a leader is to ask the right questions and package up the answers and the information to make sense for yourself and for everyone else. Okay, that's wonderful. And Seeing as you are you're, you are a people person, you get energized by people. What are you most curious about when it comes to people? I love to try and work out what makes them tick and how I can be of service to them. Uh, recently, I've been using a really useful frame that a coach of mine uh, taught me. So, for my colleagues or anyone who asks my help or anyone that will listen for that matter. If you think about three intersecting Venn-like circles, um, what do you love? Using the L word again. What are you great at? And what's the need? What's the societal or the business need? I'm using it a lot at the moment. I've become quite evangelistic about it. Is this the, um, I've seen it as a, I think it's Iyagi, like a, um, a Japanese motif. Is that what you're talking about? I think so. Great. I think it is. Um, I haven't, I haven't seen it, but that, that word sounds familiar. Yeah. 
Okay, I'll make sure that that's a link in the show notes as well for folks. Because, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it is a really useful frame in terms of how you leverage people's ability, what's needed, and what they're passionate about. Because that just makes life life and work so much better when those three things are in combination. Because um, you could quite easily do a job that you hate, not using your best talents for a purpose you don't believe in, <laughs> which is just misery personified. Exactly. Yeah, you want that perfect sweet spot right in the middle of the Venn, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. That'll be perfect. Now, we, we've done a pretty good job at selling your pathway as pretty amazing and clear and full of um, successes. Have you had any failures where you got knocked over and had to pull yourself up again? Um, yeah, I think my trajectory has been one of up, really, and, and many, many roles. So I must have had in my mind, in my subconscious, that, that up is good, up is success. And the the role previous to my last one where I was managing the ACT in Southern Region, um, I'd been doing that for somewhere between five and six years and I was starting to get a bit, probably a bit tired. Um, and I found myself plateauing and not being in flow and I sort of couldn't find or couldn't, couldn't necessarily see my next step. So I really had to step back, found out that I was, in the end, derailing from that current position. Um, so that was that knocked the wind out of me a little bit. I had to turn the mirror on myself, and I think at the time it probably looked a bit ugly. <laughs> I have been used to landing on my feet, so yeah, that did take some resilience. But I managed to, and the and the organisation found me. So thankfully, this current role, you know, we either designed together or or found it some way, and I managed to get there. I think. The other thing that became clear to me is that success is not always up. You don't have to climb. You can just stay on the same ladder. But I think what was going on in my mind at the moment that was that time that was quite challenging for me was, you know, am I am I actually on the right wall? Is my ladder on the right wall? Do I, do I really want a big change? So that's what happens when you get the, the stuffing knocked out of you. You start to really question who you are and, and what you are to the organisation. But um, I found my place and, yeah, it's really a dream job. That's quite an interesting experience. So you talked about you were derailing yourself or you were derailed or a bit of both? I think a bit of both, yeah. Uh, I had a really challenging project to manage. I was part of an executive cohort that was doing some some leadership learning. Um, and so my, you know, the air in my balloon was really starting to push on, you know, to almost bursting point. So there was a, there was a capacity and bandwidth issue. They were all good things to be doing at the same time, but the change program in particular that I was managing was, yeah, it was, was difficult, like a lot of change programs. So I found that hard, and I think the organisation found it hard as well. So you had a little bit of reorientation about what success means. You know, you talked about success is always going up in progress and stuff, and then you experienced this deflating or derailing kind of experience. How do you, yeah. now, how do you now define success? Oh, for me, just so long as I'm learning, so long as I'm growing and so long as I'm being of service to others, I think that is success. That's kind of a massive change <laughs> in terms of, of success, you know. It's about like before it was about progress and growth and advancement and now about learning and growing, mm. which is a different kind of growth and advancement. Um how does it feel differently? Like I'm hearing that the first one about, you know, success is up feels like a push. 
And the second one, which is about learning and growing, doesn't feel like that. What's your experience of the different of feeling the success in those two different ways? I think that's I think that's right. So you know, maybe I was subconsciously feeling the other roles as okay. I've done that. What's next? I've done that. What's next? I've done that. What's next? And they happen to be up and upish, maybe across. And so there there was that subconscious going on there. Um, and I think maybe the other piece of how that feels potentially competitive um, whereas it feel I feel very at peace um, I feel so long as I'm contributing and that I'm getting good feedback and that I'm also getting constructive and negative feedback about how I could do better uh, and so long as I'm seeing other people grow as well it feels very freeing yeah feels very peaceful oh. <laughs> Can you be more genius? You know, you find the people stuff easy and then you have this freeing, peaceful sense of success. <laughs> like we just need to bottle a bit of that and, and sprinkle that along uh, amongst a whole bunch of people who don't have that experience, who have the sense of success is always about struggle and achievement and pushing. And, yeah. uh, and there is not much peace in that. Um, so, But I love, I love that too. So I love that, um, not that people are in pain, but I love being reached out to and whether it's advice or just listening or over a period of time, either mentoring or sponsoring informally or formally, I just love um, trying to help. Oh, that's beautiful. No wonder that your organizations grab you and snapped you up and <laughs> infiltrated <laughs> you across the organization. GEHD is lucky to, to have you, it sounds like. That's wonderful. So I did have another question around this. Um, mm -hmm. when it comes to, oh yeah, feedback. So you talked about like, you get lots of feedback. How do you actually get feedback? Do you ask for it? Is it offered? What's the feedback culture like there at a GHD? I would say we could do better at, at unsolicited feedback, which means that I need to get better at asking for feedback. So, you know, how am I going? Is that something you want me to learn? Do I need to know that? Um, how did you think I went in that meeting? Did I prepare well enough? Did we prepare well enough? How do we want to turn up in this meeting? How did we go with that? You know, we, we just need to be more curious and I, I could certainly be better at that. Um, and receiving feedback, particularly negative feedback, I need to get better at, yeah, being ready for the receive if it's a surprise and letting it wash through and really deeply listening because sometimes when you get triggered or when you when you get defensive, it's hard to hear. So sometimes you need to take a break and then come back to it and say, yeah, I actually did hear you giving me feedback, but I was, I was struggling with it. So, tell, you know, tell me again. <laughs> I need to know. Yeah, that's very mature because often, yeah, we can feel attacked if we get constructive feedback. And it's good to let those feelings wash through and then revisit it and say, okay, that, that amygdala hijack's done. <laughs> I'm not in survival mode anymore. Yes. Please tell me again so I can actually make use of that. Awesome. Um, uh, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it would be overstating it to say I was mature. I really do need to work on that. That's something I'm working on at the moment. Yeah, that it's not an easy one to master that. And I have, mm -hmm. well, there's only a few people I've ever met who are awesome at it, who are gracious enough to invite it and really crave it and embrace it. Most of us still have a lot of ego at play and need to just learn how to put that ego in the passenger seat and not let it be behind the wheel, taking control. <laughs> There's also very little feedback loop. So I was, um, I was at a um, high intensity inter interval training this morning and my personal trainer in the, in the group said, you know, you're arching your back. And so I changed it and she said, good change. 
And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm doing this and it's harder. Great, thanks. <laughs> um, but having that feedback loop say, I, I gave you some feedback and you changed and it was a good change, I don't hear that very often and I think that is something that I could work into my, into my space. Yeah, that's a really useful piece of advice. Uh, in so many different contexts. Uh, so how do we, it's not just about giving and receiving feedback. It's about the loop, you know, you did it. I've observed the change, reinforce, good job. Or you, you know, your back's not quite straight. Try it this way. You know, that's yeah, awesome. That's exactly. fantastic. Yeah. All right. So I've got two questions to finish up with. Um, one is I'm, a, I'm an avaricious reader, so I love books. I'm not sure if you are an avaricious reader either. And I'm just going to take a punt. Have you got a favorite leadership book that you can recommend? At the moment, I'm reading, well, it's probably the second time I've read it, The Mind of the Leader. So it's, a, mm. it's about mindfulness practice and the role of compassion and wisdom in, in leadership. And it includes love. Um, doesn't mention love too much. But, yeah, it's a really, really great book by Rasmus Hugard, who is one of the gurus in mindfulness. I recommend it. An easy read too. Awesome. I will definitely put that in the show notes and pick that up for myself. Awesome. And... Is there a leader that you've come across that either, you know, personally or that you've observed from afar that you admire and um, model? Well, I can tell you a story about someone that I now admire. When I um, originally came into contact with this person, I found them very triggering um, and I found it really difficult to see them properly uh, and to hear them. So I wasn't listening to what they were about. And a colleague said to me, I think you need to change your mental model about that person. And I took that advice and realized that I needed to change my mindset about that person. So I did a lot of gratitude work and a lot of noticing the things that I admire and the things that I'm, I'm grateful for. And 180 degrees later, I now see this person completely differently, what they contribute, how well they perform in certain situations, how glad I am that they're doing that job that they're doing and how well they're they're doing it and how well we're going as a result don't get me wrong I still feel the odd trigger or the rub but I'm very good at letting it wash over and I over me and I really admire that person oh my goodness that's a massive turnaround yeah yeah it was it was and it was hard but um I think I'm there that's really amazing so I call those people who trigger us um aliens <laughs> there's like aliens in oh, your world you're right that you're like, how the hell do they live and work and, and because they seem so completely different to us. And one of the key insights I've had in my journey too is that the, the aliens that trigger us the most are often our biggest ally. And it's great that you've had that realization as well. It's like, wow, they're actually really good at A, B, and C. They're not yeah. the, the idiot or jerk that I thought they were. <laughs> 100%, 100%. Yes, yeah, I totally agree with that. Oh, that's fantastic. Joe, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. That was great to hear your story. Great to hear your insights and your little nuggets of wisdom. And I love the fact that you're on a deep personal development journey as well as a leadership journey and that you're infiltrating organizations with love and compassion and this great wisdom that you've got. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Zoe. Great to be here. Well, that was totally cool. I just love listening to leaders and what they do on the job and the learning they get from the interactions that they have. A couple of key takeaways for me were this, back yourself as a learner. So I love the fact that 
Joe has the principle that you don't have to have the experience before you actually have a go at something. So back yourself with your ability to learn. And I think that's a wonderful growth mindset right there. Uh, implement a feedback loop. So it's not in giving and receiving feedback. It's not about giving feedback and receiving it. It's about checking in. Is it working? Is it not working? And letting people know, I think is really important. So that was wonderful highlight there. And my favorite bit, love is the most underused word in business. So to act on that, I love you. I love the fact that you're listening and supporting and learning as a leader. So thanks very much. Make sure that you do sign up to the newsletter. It is The link is right there in the show notes. Just click it now while you're thinking of it. And so we can continue to share the love. All right. Have a wonderful day.